are listening to the most original talk radio station anywhere. We are L.A. Talk Radio at latalkradio.com. You can support Sapphire Planet by visiting the online store at sapphireplanet.com. Welcome. Your journey is just beginning. You are now entering the Sapphire Planet. Sapphire Planet. Winston Churchill. In September 1922, the Conservative Party withdrew from the coalition government following a meeting of the backbenchers dissatisfied with the handling of the Shannock Crisis, a move that precipitated the looming October 1922 general election. Churchill fell ill during the campaign and had to have an appendectomy. This made it difficult for him to campaign, and a further setback was the internal division which continued to beset the Liberal Party. He came fourth in the poll for Dundee, losing to prohibitionist Edward Scrymanger. Churchill later quipped that he left Dundee without an office, without a seat, without a party, and without an appendix. He stood for the Liberals again in the 1923 election, losing in Leicester, and then as an independent first without success in a by-election in the Westminster Abbey consistency, and then successfully in the general election of 1924 for Epping. The following year, he formally rejoined the Conservative Party, commenting wryly that anyone can rat, but it takes a certain ingenuity to re-rat. Churchill was appointed Chancellor of the Exchequer in 1924 under Stanley Baldwin and oversaw Britain's disastrous return to the gold standard, which resulted in deflation, unemployment, and a minor strike that led to the general strike of 1926. His decision, announced in the 1924 budget, 
came after long consultation with various economists, including John Maynard Kinnes and Permanent Secretary to the Treasury, Sir Otto Neumeyer, and the Board of the Bank of England. This decision prompted Kenes to write The Economic Consequences of Mr. Churchill, arguing that the return to the gold standard at the pre-war parity in 1925, which would make a pound sterling equivalent to $4.86, would lead to a world depression. However, the decision was generally popular and seen as sound economics, although it was opposed by Lord Beaverbrook and the Federation of British Industries. Churchill later regarded this as the greatest mistake of his life. However, in discussions at the time with former Chancellor McKenna, Churchill acknowledged that the return to the gold standard and the resulting dear money policy was economically bad. In those discussions, he maintained the policy as fundamentally political, a return to the pre-war condition in which he believed. In his speech on the bill, he said, I will tell you what will shackle us to. It will shackle us to reality. The return to the pre-war exchange rate and the gold standard depressed industries. The most affected was the coal industry, already suffering from declining outputs as shipping switched to oil. As basic British industries like cotton came under more competition in export markets, the return to the pre-war exchange was estimated to add up to 10% in the cost of the industry. In July 1925, a commission of inquiry reported generally favoring the miners rather than the mine owners' position. Baldwin, with Churchill's support, proposed a subsidy to the industry while a royal commission prepared a further report. The commission solved nothing, and the miners' dispute led to the general strike of 1926. Churchill was reported to have suggested that he become the editor of a government newspaper, the British Gazette. And during the dispute, he argued that either the country will break the general strike or the general strike will break the country. Later, economists, as well as people at the time, also criticized Churchill's budget measures. These were seen as assisting the generally prosperous rentier banking and salary classes, to which Churchill and his associates generally belonged, at the expense of manufacturers and exporters, which were known then to be suffering from imports and from competition in traditional export markets, and as pairing the armed forces too heavily. The conservative government was defeated in 1929, general election. Churchill did not seek election in the Conservative Business Committee, the official leadership of the conservative MPs. Over the next two years, Churchill became estranged from conservative leadership over the issues of protective tariffs and Indian home rule. By his political views and by his friendships with press barons, financiers, 
and people whose character was seen as dubious. When Ramsay MacDonald formed the national government in 1931, Churchill was not invited to join the cabinet. He was at the low point in his career, in a period known as the Wilderness Years. He spent much of his next few years concentrating on his writings, works including Marlborough, His Life and Times, a biography of his ancestor John Churchill, First Duke of Marlborough, and A History of the English-Speaking Peoples, though the later was not published until well after the Second World War. He also wrote great contemporaries and many newspaper articles and the collections of speeches. He was one of the best-paid writers of his time. His political views set forth in the 1930 Romans election and published a Parliamentary Government and the Economic Problems, republished in 1932 in his collection of essays, Thoughts and Adventures, involved abandoning universal suffrage, a return to a property franchise, proportional representation for major cities, and an economic sub-parliament. Churchill opposed Gandhi's peaceful disobedience revolt and the Indian independence movement of the 1930s, arguing that at the roundtable conference was a frightful prospect. The whole topic of Indian independence was front and center at Britain at that time. Later reports indicate that Churchill favored letting Gandhi die if he went on a hunger strike. During the first half of the 1930s, Churchill was outspoken in his opposition to granting dominion status to India. He was a founder of the Indian Defense League, a group dedicated to the preservation of British power in India. Churchill brooked no moderation. The truth is, he declared in 1930, that Gandhiism and everything it stands for will have to be grappled with and crushed. In speeches and press articles in the period, he forecast widespread unemployment in Britain and civil strife in India should independence be granted. The Viceroy, Lord Irwin, who had been appointed by the prior Conservative government, engaged in the Round Table Conference in the early 1931 and then announced the government's policy that India should be granted dominion status. In this, the government was supported by the Liberal Party, and officially at least, by the Conservative Party. Churchill denounced the Round Table Conference. At a meeting of the West Essex Conservation Association, specially convened so that Churchill could explain his position, He said, It is alarming and also nauseating to see Mr. Gandhi, a seditious Middle Temple lawyer, now posing as a faker of type well-known in the East, striding half-naked up the steps of the Viceregal Palace to parlay on equal terms with the representatives of the King Emperor. He called the Indian National Congress leaders 
Brahmins who mouth and pattered principles of Western liberalism. Two incidents damaged Churchill's reputation greatly within the Conservative Party in this period. Both were taken as attacks on the Conservative front bench. The first was his speech on the eve of St. George by-election in April 1931. In a secure Conservative seat, the official Conservative candidate, Duff Cooper, was opposed by an independent Conservative. The independent was supported by Lord Rothmere, Lord Beaverbrook, and their respective newspapers. Although arranged before the by-election was set, Churchill's speech was seen as supporting the independent candidate and was part of the press baron's campaign against Baldwin. Baldwin's position was strengthened when Duff Cooper won and when the civil disobedience campaign in India ceased with the Gandhi-Irwin Pact. The second issue was a claim by Churchill that Sir Samuel Hoare and Lord Derby had pressured the Manchester Chamber of Commerce to change evidence it had given to the St. Joint Select Committee considering the Government of India bill, and doing so had breached parliamentary privilege. He had the matter referred to the House of Commons Privilege Committee, which, after investigations in which Churchill gave evidence, reported to the House that there had been no breach. The report was debated on June 13th. Churchill was unable to find a single supporter in the House, and the debate ended without a division. Churchill permanently broke with Stanley Baldwin over Indian independence and never again held any office while Baldwin was the Prime Minister. Some historians see his basic attitude to India as being set out in his book, My Early Life, published in 1930. Another source of controversy about Churchill's attitude towards Indian affairs arises over what some historians term the Indian nationalist approach to the Bengal famine of 1943, which has sought to place significant blame on Churchill's wartime government for the excessive mortality of up to 4 million people. While some commentators point to the disruption of the traditional market systems and maladministration at the provincial level, Arthur Herman, author of the Churchill and Gandhi, contends the real cause was the fall of Burma to the Japanese, which cut off India's main supply of rice imports when domestic sources fell short. Though it is true that Churchill opposed diverting food supplies and transports, from other theaters to India to cover the shortfall, this was wartime. In response to an urgent request by the Secretary of State for India, Leo Amory and Viceroy of India, Wavell, to release food stocks for India, Churchill responded with a telegram to Wavell asking, If food is so scarce, why Gandhi hadn't died yet? In July 1940, newly in office, he welcomed reports of the emerging conflict between the Muslim League and the Indian Congress, 
hoping it would be bitter and bloody. Beginning in 1932, when he opposed those who advocated giving Germany the right to military parity with France, Churchill spoke often of the dangers of Germany's rearmament. He later, particularly in The Gathering Storm, portrayed himself as being for a time a lone voice calling on Britain to strengthen itself to counter the belligerence of Germany. However, Lord Lloyd was the first so to agitate. In 1932, Churchill accepted the presidency of the newly founded New Commonwealth Society, a peace organization which he described in 1937 as one of the few peace societies that advocates the use of force, if possible overwhelming force, to support public international law. Churchill's attitude towards the fascist fascist dictators was ambiguous. After the First World War defeat of Germany, a new danger occupied the political consciousness, the spread of communism. A newspaper article penned by Churchill and published on February 4, 1920, had warned that world peace was threatened by the Bolsheviks. In 1931, he warned against the League of Nations opposing the Japanese in Manchuria. I will hope we shall try in England to understand the position of Japan, an ancient state. On the one side they have the dark menace of the Soviet Russia, on the other the chaos of China, four or five provinces which are being tortured under communist rule. The contemporary newspaper articles he referred to the Spanish Republican government as a communist front and Franco's army as the anti-red movement. He supported the Hoare Lavelle Pact and continued up until 1937 to praise Benito Mussolini. Speaking at the House of Commons in 1937, Churchill said, I will not pretend that if I had to choose between communism and Nazism, I would choose communism. In a 1935 essay titled Hitler and His Choice, which was republished in his 1937 book, Great Contemporaries, Churchill expressed a hope that Hitler, if he so chose, and despite his rise to power through dictatorial actions, hated and cruelty, might yet go down in history as a man who restored honor and peace of mind to the great Germanic nation and brought it back to serene, helpful, and strong to the forefront of the European family circle. Churchill's first major speech on defense on February 7, 1934, stressed the need to rebuild the Royal Air Force and to create a Ministry of Defense. His second on July 13th urged a renewed role for the League of Nations. These three topics remained his themes until early 1936. 
1935, he was one of the founding members of The Focus, which brought together people of different political backgrounds and occupations who were united in seeking the defense of freedom and peace. The Focus led to the formation of much wider arms and the Covenant Movement in 1936. Churchill, holidaying in Spain when the Germans reoccupied the Rhineland in February 1936, returned to a divided Britain. The labor opposition was adamant in imposing sanctions, and the national government was divided between advocates of economic sanctions and those who said that even these would lead to humiliating backdown by Britain as France would not support any intervention. Churchill's speech on March 9th was measured and praised by Neville Chamberlain as constructive. But within weeks, Churchill was passed over for the post of Minister for Coordination of Defense in favor of Attorney General Sir Thomas Inskip. Alan Taylor called this an appointment rightly described as the most extraordinary since Caligula made his horse a council. In June 1936, Churchill organized a deputation of senior conservatives who shared his concern to see Baldwin, Chamberlain, and Halifax. He had tried to have delegates from the other two parties and later wrote, If the leaders of the labor and liberal opposition had come with us, there might have been a political situation so intense as to enforce remedial action. It was the meeting achieved little. Baldwin arguing that government was doing all it could, given the anti-war feeling of the electorate. On November 12th, Churchill returned to the topic, speaking in the address in reply to debate, after giving some specific instances of Germany's war preparedness, he said, The government simply cannot make up their mind, or they cannot get the prime minister to make up his mind. So they go on in strange paradox, decided only to be undecided, resolved to be irresolute, adamant for drift, solid for fluidity, all-powerful for impotency. And so we go on preparing more months, more years, precious, perhaps, vital, for the greatness of Britons, for the locusts to eat. R.R. James called this one of Churchill's most brilliant speeches during the period. Baldwin's reply sounding weak and disturbing the house. The exchange gave new encouragement to the arms and the covenant movement. Then there was the abdication crisis. In June 1936, Walter Moncockton told Churchill that the rumors that King Edward VIII intended to marry Mrs. Wallace Simpson were true. Churchill then advised against the marriage and said he regarded Mrs. Simpson's existing marriage as a safeguard. In November, 
he declined Lord Salisbury's invitation to be part of a delegation of senior conservative backbenchers who met with the Baldwin to discuss the matter. On November 25th, he, Attlee, and liberal leader Archibald Sinclair met with Baldwin, were told officially of the king's intentions, and asked whether they would form an administration if Baldwin and the national government resigned should the king not take the minister's advice. Both Attlee and Sinclair said they would not take office if invited to do so. Churchill's reply was that his attitude was a little different, but he would support the government. The abdication crisis became public, coming to a head in the first two weeks of December 1936. At this time, Churchill publicly gave his support to the king. The first public meeting of the Arms and the Covenant Movement was on December 3rd. Churchill was a major speaker and later wrote that in replying to the vote of thanks, he made a declaration on the spur of the moment, asking for a delay before any decision was made by either the king or his cabinet. Later that night, Churchill saw the draft of the king's proposed wireless broadcast and spoke with Beaverbrook and the king's solicitor about it. On December 4th, he met with the king and again urged delay in any decision about the abdication. On December 5th, he issued a lengthy statement implying that the ministry was applying unconstitutional pressure on the king to force him to make a hasty decision. On December 7th, he tried to address the commons to plead for a delay. He was shouted down. Seemingly staggered by the unanimous hostility of all members, he left. Churchill's reputation in Parliament and England as a whole was badly damaged. Some, such as Alastair Cook, saw him as trying to build a king's party. Others, like Harold Macmillan, were dismayed by the damage Churchill's support for the king had done to the arms of the covenant movement. Churchill himself later wrote, I was myself so smitten in public opinion that it was the almost universal view that my political life was at last ended. Historians are divided about Churchill's motive in his support for Edward VIII. Some such as A.J.P. Taylor see it as being an attempt to overthrow the government of feeble men. Others see Churchill's motives as entirely honorable and disinterested, that he felt deeply for the king. Churchill later sought to portray himself as an isolated voice warning of the need to rearm Germany. While it was true that he had a small following in the House of Commons during the much of the 1930s, he is given privileged information by some elements within the government, particularly by dissatisfied civil servants in the war ministry. The Churchill Group, in the latter half of the decade, consisted of only himself, Duncan Sandys, and Brenda Bracken. It was isolated from the other main factions within the Conservative Party, pressing for faster rearmament 
and a stronger foreign policy. One meeting of anti-Chamberlain forces decided that Churchill would make a good minister of supply. Even during the time Churchill was campaigning against Indian independence, he received official and otherwise secret information. From 1932, Churchill's neighbor, Major Desmond Morton, with Ramsay MacDonald's approval, gave Churchill information on German air power. From 1930 onwards, Morton headed a department of the Committee of Imperial Defense, charged with researching the defense preparedness of other nations. Lord Swinton, as Secretary of State of Air, and with Baldwin's approval in 1934, gave Churchill access to official and otherwise secret information. Swinton did so knowing that Churchill would remain a critic of the government, but believing that an informed critic was better than one relying on rumor and hearsay. Churchill was a fierce critic of Neville Chamberlain's appeasement of Adolf Hitler. In a speech to the House of Commons, he bluntly and prolifically stated, You were given the choice between war and dishonor, You have chosen dishonor, and you will have war. After the outbreak of the Second World War on September 3, 1939, the day Britain declared war on Germany, Churchill was appointed First Lord of the Admiralty and a member of the War Cabinet, as he had been during the first part of the First World War. When they were informed, the Board of Admiralty sent a signal to the fleet, Winston is back. In this position, he proved to be one of the highest-profile ministers during the so-called Phony War, when the only noticeable action was at sea. Churchill advocated the preemptive occupation of neutral Norwegian iron ore ports of Norvok and the iron mines of Karuna, Sweden, early in the war. However, Chamberlain and the rest of the war cabinet disagreed, and the operation was delayed until the successful German invasion of Normandy. On May 10, 1940, hours before German invasion of France, by a lightning advance through the Low Countries, it became clear that following failure in Norway, the country had no confidence in Chamberlain's prosecution of the war, and so Chamberlain resigned. The commonly accepted version of events stated that Lord Halifax turned down the post of Prime Minister because he believed he could not govern effectively as a member of the House of Lords instead of the House of Commons. Although the Prime Minister does not traditionally advise the King on the former successor, Chamberlain wanted someone who would command the support of all three major parties in the House of Commons. A meeting between Chamberlain, Halifax, Churchill, 
and David Margesson, the government chief whip, led to the recommendation of Churchill and, as constitutional monarch, George VI asked Churchill to be prime minister. Churchill's first act was to write Chamberlain to thank him for his support. Churchill was still unpopular among many conservatives in the establishment who opposed his replacing Chamberlain. The former prime minister remained party leader until dying in November. Churchill probably could have not won a majority in any of the political parties in the House of Commons and the House of Lords was completely silent when it learned of his appointment. An American visitor reported in late 1940 that Everywhere I went in London, people admired Churchill's energy, his courage, his singleness of purpose. People said they didn't know what Britain would do without him. He was obviously respected, but no one felt he would be prime minister after the war. He was simply the right man in the right job at the right time, the time being the time of a desperate war with Britain's enemies. An element of British public and political sentiment favored a negotiated peace with Germany, among them Lord Halifax as foreign secretary. But Churchill refused to consider an armistice. Although at times personally pessimistic about Britain's chances for victory, Churchill told Hastings Ismay on June 12, 1940 that you and I will be dead in three months' time. His use of rhetoric hardened public opinion against a peaceful resolution and prepared for British for a long war. Coining the general term for the upcoming battle, Churchill stated in his finest hour speech to the House of Commons on June 18th, I expect that the Battle of Britain is about to begin. By refusing an armistice with Germany, Churchill kept resistance alive in the British Empire and created the basis for the latter Allied counterattacks of 1942 through 1945 with Britain serving as a platform for the supply of the Soviet Union and the liberation of Western Europe. In response to previous criticisms that there had been no clear single minister in charge of the prosecution of war, Churchill created and took the additional position of minister in defense, making him the most powerful wartime prime minister in British history. He immediately put his friend and confidant, industrialist and newspaper baron Lord Beaverbrook, in charge of aircraft production. It was Beaverbrook's business acumen that allowed Britain to quickly gear up aircraft production and engineering, which eventually made the difference in the war. The war energized Churchill, who was 65 years old when he became Prime Minister. An American journalist wrote in 1941, The responsibilities which are now his must be greater than those carried by any other human being on earth. 
one would think such a weight would have a crushing effect upon him. Not at all. The last time I saw him, while the Battle of Britain was still raging, he looked 20 years younger than before the war began. His uplifted spirit is transmitted to the people. Churchill's speeches were a great inspiration to the embattled British. His first speech as Prime Minister was famous. I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. One historian has called its effect on Parliament as electrifying. The House of Commons that had ignored him during the 1930s was now listening and cheering. Churchill followed that closely with two other equally famous ones given just before the Battle of Britain. One included these words, We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. The other great speech was, Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duties and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its common last last for a thousand years, men will still say, This was their finest hour. At the height of the Battle of Britain, his bracing survey of the situation included the memorable line, Never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few, which engaged the enduring nickname, The Few, for the RAF fighter pilots who won it. His, his first spoke these famous words upon his exit, from Number 11 Group's underground bunker at RAF Uxbridge, now known as the Battle of Britain Bunker, on August 16, 1940. One of his most memorable war speeches came November 10, 1942, at Lord Mayor's Luncheon in Mansion House in London. In response to Allied victory at the Second Battle of El Amman, Churchill stated, This is not the end. It is not even the beginning of the end but it is, perhaps, the end of the beginning. Without having much in the way of substance or good news to offer the British people, he took a risk in deliberately choosing to emphasize the dangers instead. Rhetorical power, wrote Churchill, is neither wholly bestowed nor wholly acquired, but cultivated. Not all were impressed by his oratory. Robert Menzies, Prime Minister of Australia, and himself a gifted phrase maker, said of Churchill during the Second World War, His real tyrant is the glittering phrase so attractive to his mind that awkward facts have to give way. Another associate wrote, He is the slave of words which his mind forms about ideas. And he can convince himself of almost every truth if it is once allowed thus to start on its wild career through his rhetorical machinery.
Throughout his life, Winston Churchill suffered from clinical depression, which he called his black dog. His personal physician, Lord Moran, in his book states that during the war years, Winston sought solace in his tumbler of whiskey and soda and his cigar. He was also a very emotional man and would break into tears during meetings when he heard of bad news. During some of his broadcast speeches, it was noticeable that he was trying to hold back the tears. It was during a meeting at the White House when Churchill was handed a signal that Torbrook had fallen that he burst into tears. The U.S. president stood up, approached Churchill, and said to him, What can we do to help? Perhaps the person best placed to summarize Churchill's contradictory motivations and flawed character during the war was the man who arguably worked most closely with him throughout most of the conflict, the chief of the Imperial General Staff from December 1941 on, Field Marshal Alan Brooke. His diary entry for September 10, 1944 is particularly revealing and the wonderful thing is that three quarters of the population of the world imagine that Churchill is one of the strategists of history a second Marlborough and the other one quarter have no idea what a public menace he has been throughout this war it is far better that the world should never know and never suspect the feet of clay of this otherwise superhuman being. Without him, England was lost for a certainty. With him, England has been on the verge of disaster time and time again. Never have I admired and despised a man simultaneously to the same extent. Never have such opposite extremes been combined in the same human being. Churchill and the United States Churchill's good relationship with the United States President Franklin D. Roosevelt between 1939 and 1945, they exchanged an estimated 1,700 letters and telegrams and met 11 times. Churchill estimates they had 120 days of close personal contact helped secure vital food, oil, and munitions via the North Atlantic shipping routes. It was for this reason that Churchill was relieved when Roosevelt was re-elected in 1940. Upon re-election, Roosevelt immediately set about implementing a new method of providing military hardware and shipping to Britain without the need for monetary payment. Put simply, Roosevelt persuaded Congress that repayment for this immensely costly service would take the form of defending the U.S. And so Lend-Lease was born. Churchill had 12 strategic conferences with Roosevelt, which covered the Atlantic Charter, Europe First Strategy, the Declaration by the United Nations, and other war policies. After Pearl Harbor was attacked, Churchill's first thought in anticipation of U.S. help was, we have won the war. 
On December 26, 1941, Churchill addressed a joint meeting of the U.S. Congress asking of Germany and Japan, what kind of people do they think we are? Churchill initiated the Special Operations Executive Order under Hugh Dalton's Ministry of Economic Warfare, which established, conducted, and fostered covert, subversive, and partisan operations in occupied territories with notable success, and also the commandos which established the pattern for most of the world's current special forces. The Russians referred to him as the British Bulldog. Churchill's health was fragile, as shown by a mild heart attack he suffered in December 1941 at the White House, and also in December 1943 when he contracted pneumonia. Despite this, he traveled over 100,000 miles throughout the war to meet other national leaders. For security, he usually traveled using the alias Colonel Warden. Churchill was party to treaties that would redraw post-Second World War European and Asian boundaries. These were discussed as early as 1943. At the Second Quebec Conference in 1944, he drafted and, together with Roosevelt, signed a less harsh version of the original Mogadishu Plan, in which they pledged to convert Germany after its unconditional surrender into a country primarily agricultural and pastoral in character. Proposals for European boundaries and settlements were officially agreed on by Henry S. Truman, Churchill, and Joseph Stalin at Potsdam. Churchill's strong relationship with Harry Truman was also of great significance to both countries. While he clearly regretted the loss of his close friend and counterpart Roosevelt, Churchill was enormously supportive of Truman in his first days of office, calling him the type of leader the world needs when it needs him most. Churchill and the Soviet Union When Hitler invaded the Soviet Union, Winston Churchill was a vehement anti-communist, famously stated, If Hitler invaded hell... I would at least make a favorable reference to the devil in the House of Commons. Regarding his policy towards Stalin, soon British supplies and tanks were flowing to help the Soviet Union. The Casablanca Conference, meeting of Allied powers held in Casablanca, Morocco, on January 14th through January 23rd, 1943, produced what was known to be known as the Casablanca Declaration. In attendance were Churchill, Franklin Roosevelt, and Charles de Gaulle. Stalin had bowed out, citing the need for his presence in the Soviet Union to attend to the Stalingrad crisis. It was the Casablanca that the Allies made a unified commitment to continue the war through to the unconditional surrender of the Axis powers. In private, however, Churchill did not fully subscribe to the doctrine of unconditional surrender and was taken by surprise when Franklin Roosevelt announced this to the world as an allied consensus.
the settling concern the borders of Poland, that is, the boundary between Poland and the Soviet Union, and between Germany and Poland, was viewed as a portrayal, betrayal in Poland during the post-war years, as it was established against the views of the Polish government in exile. It was Winston Churchill who tried to motivate Milo Jacek, who was the prime minister of the Polish government in exile, to accept Stalin's wishes, but Milo Jacek refused. Churchill was convinced that the only way to alleviate tension between the two populations was the transfer of people to match their national borders. Your journey is now ending. You are now leaving the Sapphire Planet. Goodbye from the Sapphire Planet. Own a piece of the planet? Now you can purchase Sapphire Planet merchandise online at sapphireplanet.com.